you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. All right, here we go, back again. <laughs> Indeed. Alrighty. Whenever you say, all right. I'm, I'm expecting you to go into like a 70s DJ thing. Like, all right, this is Smoky <laughs> Tunes with DJ Z. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are playing Mambo number five. <laughs> <laughs> were, were there any other Mambos or was it just Mambo number five? I think it was just Mambo number five. I can respect that. You know, like how there's no Windows 9. Oh, I guess there isn't. No, it went from eight to ten, didn't it? I'm too young for that. That was like not. That I never many used years ago. Windows. Okay, I did. I never used Windows. I'm a luddite. Okay, I got my first laptop in college. Uh, okay. I can't wait to be a frumpy old woman. <laughs> Back in my day, we didn't have holograms. <laughs> <laughs> we had this stupid thing called the metaverse. Oh God, it's so dumb. It's it's. I don't like it. Mm-mm. It's in the realm of like. The crypto weirdness that I'm not going to touch. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly in that area. Yeah. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Oh, gosh. Should we get started? <laughs> yes. Let's get started. <laughs> Unhappier things like Unha- Old English elegiac verse. Woohoo. Oh, yeah. This is a cheery, cheery episode today. But before we do that, before we do that, we have another patron to shout out this week. And it is... Edith, thank you so much, Edith, for supporting the podcast and for just donating both your money and your time to listening to us ramble, apparently, about these silly things. And we are very, very grateful that you do so. Uh, It helps us create more content that you guys like, and we want you guys to have a stake in what we do and have not only like a monetary stake, but also a creative stake, which is why we've put together the Facebook, the Discord, all our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. So you guys can reach out to us if we're missing something, if you want to hear us highlight something, if something new comes out like there's a new great ttrpg that just came out and you think oh hey this fits right in shout it out bring it to us we want to highlight that stuff we want to highlight other creators other academics wherever you are whatever you're doing we want to hear about it so please come join the community and thank you edith for supporting the podcast. And if you would like to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon. We also have a coffee account as well if you want to do just something real quick one time, something like that. We appreciate any and all time and monetary donations that you feel like providing us. Yes. It also gives us, you know, some proof that people are actually listening to this and enjoying it, which is yes. necessary to keep us motivated. Keep us motivated and going. Absolutely. It's nice to know that your work is being appreciated because, you know, we live in a society. Uh, but anyway. Yes. I mean, especially in academia, it's very it's very rough to like put your essays out and all you get is a letter or a number and then you're like oh okay thanks <laughs> so it's it's nice to engage with what we love doing without having everything be graded or like i guess measured in that way yeah although if you do want to give us a grade go give leave an itunes review yeah there you go absolutely do give us grades we're we're both academics we thrive on i guess numbers and letters that represent our work's value I'm going to stop being so cynical. (laughs) 
please assign us a numerical worth in stars on iTunes. Yes, please do indeed. Define our value as humans. <laughs> the world ended in 2020 and it's not going to get better. <laughs> so anyway, let's read some old English poetry about it. Yeah, that was actually <laughs> that actually sounds pretty much right for the the mood. So take a moment, meditate on uh, on what Zoe just said about the world ending in 2020, and that'll put you in like the right space of mind for this for poetry. Our topic today, and our topic today is old English elegiac poetry, which I do not nearly feel prepared enough to talk about because so much has been written on old English elegy. Like, this is the sort of thing that, I am not kidding, academics have spent their entire lives on. So I'm hoping to give you guys sort of an overview about it and sort of more the artsy, fun stuff that you can take from these poems, rather than jumping into, like, what the specific semiotic and lingual words mean. Because we like to be academic on this podcast, but also it's not useful or helpful, I think, to anybody to dive into the super specific like fragments of like linguistics or meter or poetry or you know whatever oh, does that mean we're not talking about the metrics we're not going to talk about patterns of stress and unstressed syllables if i ever have to do any meter ever again i translated the aeneid okay i did that in high school and i hated every second of it ah <sighs> stupid Dactylic hexameter. <laughs> anyway, poetry was a hard subject for me. I much preferred Cicero's orations and uh, the Gallic Wars. Much easier Latin to, <laughs> to parse and understand. But man, okay, so Old English Elegy. We're going to go through three poems today. We're going to go through The Wanderer, which is one of my favorites, The Seafarer, and The Wife's Lament. I'm sure some of you listeners are already familiar with these poems, so hopefully... It'll be a fun way to dive in and revisit those. And if you're a new listener or someone who has never read an Old English elegy before, then hopefully this will be a fun introduction to them because they are quite fun. And I, as a Tolkien nerd, especially appreciate them because you can see the kind of language that Tolkien used in his works through these poems. And that's one of my favorite parts about them. And Mac, please correct me on any linguistic semiotic thing that pops up that maybe I get wrong because I did more form and function and symbology in these poems rather than looking at the language like yeah I translated it but we didn't we didn't sit too heavily on the language when I did it in uh in my master's so I'll try and jump in if I catch anything okay awesome but as they say in one of the poems we're not covering the ruin Nice. Yes. Okay, so a little bit of background on these poems. All of these poems are found in the Exeter book, which was donated to the Exeter Cathedral by the Bishop Leofric in 1072. We've talked about this book before on the podcast. It's the home of the Old English riddles, and basically a massive chunk of any and all Old English literature we currently have. So it's sort of one of the world's treasures of literature, specifically Old English literature. Uh, it also holds several more elegies, like The Ruin, religious poems that we'll definitely have to come back to. Oh, gosh. Like, are the rude poems in the Exeter book? I can't remember. I don't have it right in front of me. The dream of the rude is... 
In the Vercelli book. Oh, the Vercelli book. So I'm thinking of Christ, I think. The Christ poems. But the Dream of the Root is wild. It's like, how would you des- how would you describe it? It's like a really weird acid trip. Yeah, yeah, it really Like is. a really weird acid trip. Like the cross is bleeding and then it's covered in jewels and then it's bleeding again and it's talking to you. It's a very interesting poem. But anyway, we're not looking at that one today. We're focusing more on the elegies. And let's see, we can't be sure of when any of these poems were originally penned, but we can date the manuscript itself to about 975. And like many of the texts we cover, these poems were likely penned or spoken before they existed in in the manuscript. So again, we have this lovely long oral tradition coming all the way down, and then it was eventually penned uh, in the extra book. Before we jump into the poems... What is an elegy anyway? How would you describe an elegy, Mac? I'm putting you on the spot here because it's a weird question. Uh, I would say it is a poem that's generally about loss and mourning and kind of a feeling of isolation, a feeling of... A feeling melancholy? For, uh, yeah, melancholy. I, I was reaching for like a feeling of... of Things past. Mm-hmm. It's a sad poem. <laughs> yes. Largely, I guess most generally, broadly, it's a sad poem. Terming elegy is a difficult thing to do because it sort of depends on what kind of elegy you're describing. You can be talking about the Greek and Roman elegy, which is sort of tied to Old English elegy, but it's much, much older. It has different themes. Then there's Victorian poetry, which is usually or Victorian elegy, sorry, which is usually a memorial of a dead person. Like it's very, it's much more specific. But the Old English elegy has different connotations. In Old English literature, it generally is a mourning poem with themes and a tone of meditation and gravity. It usually focuses on a singular individual, but it also encompasses the problems of an entire society, which we'll especially see in The Wanderer. So it sort of goes back and forth between the individual and that individual meditating on how far or I guess how far their society has fallen, essentially. Mm Mm-hmm and their social circle. And one final note before we read these poems. Uh, Again, if you're looking for a comprehensive and literary look at these poems, this is the wrong podcast for that. We're going to be looking mostly at the poem's content and what captures the attention, or at least my attention and Max's attention, rather than like diving deep into specific word or meter or things like that. I am not an expert in poetic meter in English, much less old English. I have tried and failed multiple times. (laughs) So I think that was the one test in college that I like did miserably on (laughs) was interpreting some John Donne poem. I had a very hard time with poetry. Oh, dear. Oh, I know, which is hilarious because, you know, now I write for my job. But anyway, uh, let's go ahead and jump into these poems. So I figured we would start with The Wanderer, which is, I guess, my favorite, probably my favorite. And as a very special treat, I thought that I would read my translation. Oh, how nice. (laughs) So we'll see how well that goes. But yes, I do have it. And I won't be reading the Old English, but like you'll see in other things in the extra book, you'll see a lot of the alliteration of the same sounds being repeated. Uh, Old English poetry in general, but also elegiac poetry, has this weird, 
almost staccato feature where you get sort of half sentences that string together and connect, but they're still independent thoughts. Does that vibe with how you've read Old English Poetry? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's, yeah, I would say half sentences that string together. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I'm talking. I just agree. Because <laughs> I guess in Virgil or in things like John Donne poetry, things like that, you'll have really, really long sentences that are split up into different lines, but it's still all one sentence. Old English poetry is very different. It's more like, here's a thought, here's a thought, here's a thought. They all sort of conceptualize something together, but it's not a full sentence. Right. Although they are full sentences in most translations you'll see because yes. people add like punctuation and stuff to them. Yes, absolutely. And do remember that in the Exeter book, we don't have a lot of punctuation, if any at all. So mm -hmm. trying to understand where thoughts are breaking, where maybe someone is speaking, is the narrator speaking? Is the narrator the wanderer? Like, who knows? We don't because they didn't use punctuation. So that's one of the reasons why there's so much literature about these poems is who is speaking? Where do we break these poems up? How do we split them? How do we understand them? It's a very difficult process to take on. So keep that in mind as we go through. And also note that that choppiness is sort of part and parcel of Old English elegiac poetry. So if it reads that way, or if it feels that way in the reading, that is what I would consider true to the spirit of the original Old English text. So, the wanderer, often the solitary one with his own favor, mercy of the Lord, though he, sorrowful at heart, must through a long seaway stir with his hands a frost-cold sea to travel the paths of exile. Fate is full resolute. Thus quoth the earth-stepper, mindful of hardship, of cruel slaughters of his dear kinsmen, Oft I alone have had to each dawn bewail my sorrows. Now there is no one living to whom I might dare my soul openly express. I know it for truth, that it is noble custom in a man that he might bind fast his spirit locker, that is to say, his ribcage or his chest, might hold in his hoard chamber whatever he might think, his hoard chamber being his mind. Nor can a weary soul withstand fate, nor a disturbed spirit provide help. For those who are often eager for glory might bind in their breasts something sad. Thus, I have had to bind my soul, often wretchedly sorrowful, deprived from my homeland, far from noble kinsmen by fetters. Afterwards, formerly, long ago, my generous lord, I hid in the earth's darkness, and I, wretched, thence went, sorrowful as winter, over binding waves. I sought a giver of treasure, sorrowful at the hall separation, where I might find, near or far, he who knew my people in a mead hall, or who would console friendless me, entertain me with joys. He knows who knows how cruel sorrow is as a companion, for him who has few beloved confidants. The path of exile claims him, not at all twisted gold, a frozen life enclosure, not at all glory of the earth. He remembers men of the hall and receiving treasure, how his generous lord in his youth entertained at the feast. All joy departed. Therefore, he knows, he who must be his lord and friend, beloved lore speech, long forego. 
When song and sleep together both often bind a wretched man, he thinks in his mind that he, his lord, embraced and kissed, and on a knee lays hand and head, just as he in time before enjoyed the use of the gift seat in days of yore. Then again he wails, friendless man, seeing before him dark waves, sea birds to bathe, feathers to spread, frost and snow to fall, mixed with hail. Then are the heart's wounds heavier, mournful for the sake of the beloved. Sorrow is renewed when memory of kinsmen pass through the heart, greets joyfully, eagerly examines the hall champions of men, swimming away again on the road. Spirit of the Floating Ones does not bring their many familiar songs. Care is renewed to him who must send, very often beyond the freezing of the waves, a weary spirit. Therefore, I imagine I cannot go through this world because my spirit may go dark. When I, a nobleman's life, ponder entirely how they suddenly left the hall, brave noble kinsmen. So this world, each and every day, failing and falls. Thus, a man unable to become wise before he passes his share of winters in the world kingdom. The wise man must be patient. He ought not seem angry, nor too haughty, nor too angry, nor too hasty, nor too cowardly of a warrior, nor too reckless, nor too timid, nor too glad, nor too greedy for wealth, nor too eager of boasting before he may readily know. The warrior must wait when he speaks an oath until a stout-hearted one readily knows to where the heart's intention will turn. Understand, the wise man may, how spiritual or how terrible it will be when all this world's wealth stands ruined, and now here and there throughout this world, blown upon walls, stand in the wind, frost-covered, the snow-swept dwellings. Decay the wine halls, rulers lie joy-deprived, all the troop falls, proud by the wall. Some war took away, carried into death, some bird bore away over the deep sea, some the grey wolf in death shared, some a sad-faced warrior hid in an earthed cave. The creator so devastated this world of men, until lacking the noise of the population, the old works of the giants stood empty. He then this lamentation wisely thought, and this dark life deeply ponders. Wise and intellect often remembers, from afar a multitude of slaughters, and these words speaks. Where came the horse? Where came the rider? Where came the treasure giver? Where came the banquet seats? Where are the hall revelries? O oh, bright cup! O oh, warriors in mail! O oh, king's splendor! How that time departed! grew dark under the cover of night, as if it never was. Stands now in the track of the beloved host a wall, wondrously high, adorned with the likeness of serpents. A host of spears turn away noblemen, weapons greedy for slaughter. The famous fate and storms beat the strong cliffs. Falling frost binds earth, tumult of winter. Then darkness comes. Night shadows grow dark. From the north it sends fierce hailstorms on men in anger. All this earthly kingdom is full of hardship. Destiny of fate changes a world under heaven. Here, wealth is transitory. Here, a friend is transitory. Here, a man is transitory. Here, a kinsman is transitory. All the earth's foundations will become empty. Thus spoke the wise man, sat himself apart at council. Good is he who his trust keeps must never knot his sorrow too quickly, a man must from his breast reveal, unless that warrior already the cure with courage can perform. Well is he who seeks himself mercy, 
consolation of the Father in heaven, where for us all that security resides. And that is the Wanderer. Yeah, sorry for making you read that long, but after you got started, <laughs> I felt bad interrupting. I was like, No, that's okay. I'm going to paste it in the chat for you so that we can go through it and parse it together. Hopefully it goes through. It says it's connecting. Because there's a lot to deconstruct here. Yes. But I do find it fun to just read all the way through. And we can we can cut in with the other two. But this one's my favorite. Yeah. No, this one, I feel, I like I said, I just feel bad interrupting this one at all. Oh, I know. It's just, it's such a heavy poem to, to read. So... Back to the top. And as we do, I did write down a little list of themes for us to consider as we go through. So let me grab those. All right. We've got the Beasts of Battle, the Ubisoft formula, the Exile, the Ruin, and the Journey. We've got Christian themes of the passing world, and we've got Loss of a Lord. Uh, so those are the, the motifs that I picked out that we can talk about. And if you have any others, Mac, feel free to bring them in. No, although the Ubisoft is... What I was trying to think of when I said things passed earlier. Mm, oh, yes, that's right. That's right. Okay, so let's jump in with our reading of The Wanderer. So first off, I want to note here that in this first line, often the solitary one with his own favor, that first line, you can translate solitary one as wanderer, which is usually where you get the title of this poem. Since they, mm -hmm. they're not titled in the Exeter book whatsoever, this is just how academic tradition titles them. But yes. I really like the connotation of the solitary one as this kind of exiled figure wandering alone. It, it connotates more to me than just a wanderer. And the word used for solitary one, Anhaga, is the same one that we saw in the Exeter Riddles when they described the shield as Anhaga. Mm -hmm. Yes, and we're going to see that again in the Seafarer as well, I believe. And then we also have a lot of kennings here. So the ones that I've translated, um, some of these I've translated more literally. Some of them I sort of left uh, a bit more poetic because I think they're very pretty. Let's see, we've got a seaway so as like your passage or your journey on a boat. I just like the idea of frost cold sea, like those two words put together are, are beautiful to me. A technical kenning would be earth stepper. So our wanderer here is an earth stepper. He's a man. He's someone who crosses the earth. Yes. One that I did not literally translate is the generous Lord. So in the poem itself, it reads as, Afterwards, formerly, long ago, my generous gold friend. Oftentimes, the word gold friend or the kenning gold friend, it just meant lord. And that's just a more artful way that they would refer to that individual. Again, giver of treasure is mm -hmm. a lord. Yeah, and you'll notice that we're using the, the term kenning a little more loosely when we talk about Old English first than when we talk about Old Norse. Yes. Because the, the strictures and the conventions are much more elaborate in mm -hmm. Old Norse verse. Versus Old English. We also have a lot of uh, just sort of vague turns of phrases that you have to interpret or you have to understand contextually. For instance... We've got Hall Champions of Men, and that's the warriors, the king's entourage, essentially. Mm -hmm. Spirit of the Floating Ones does not bring their many familiar songs. So here, the wanderer is saying he sees the birds flying out in front of his boat, and they're not singing the songs that he's familiar with that his kinsmen would sing. But I just like that. Spirit of the Floating Ones. Yeah. And the interpretation that he's in a boat rather than on a beach 
puts the lie to to a conversation I had with my medievalist professor in <laughs> undergrad. Oh no! No, no, no. This is he wasn't wrong. When he was originally teaching us like the old English grammar, one of the examples he used was, "I went to the beach to swim," and then he commented, "Well, obviously." That's not a phrase you'd actually see in Old English. It would be more like, we went to the beach to fight the Vikings. <laughs> yeah. But when we read this and we and we had him like moving water with his hands, I'm like, so are you saying he went to the beach to swim? Oh. <laughs> but it's it's actually uh, ambiguous whether he's... On the shore uh, yeah. or like, in the water. When he's, when he's saying he's moving water with his hands, he could be using an oar. Right, yeah. Stir with his hands a frost-cold sea. Yeah, which is where the interpretation that he's in a boat would come from. Yes, definitely. Uh, there's this wonderful phrase, which I've translated as, fate is full resolute. Uh, usually this can also be translated as, fate is wholly inexorable, which is basically the idea that you can't change fate. This is, whatever your fate is, you're doomed to live with it. Right, yeah, you can't fight fate. Which again sort of sets the tone for this entire poem as he's sitting through here, realizing that he's lost his people. He's looking for someone who knew his lord. He's looking for someone that might know his kinsmen, and he can't find a place to be. He can't find a new home. He's without his family. And I use family kind of loosely here. He's out his, he's without his kinsmen, uh, which is when, again, we get into the idea of homosocial bonds or homosocial ties, which are not homosexual ties, but just the bond between warriors and a cohort that you would have in this society, which are extraordinarily strong. Uh, and like yeah. in our Viking They're sagas. in this poem. <laughs> This is true. He does lay his hand and his head on his lord's knee yeah, as a sign cuddly. of fealty. It is very cuddly. But again, like in, in our Viking poems, it's, it's or not poems, but in the Viking sagas, it's very common for someone to adopt a kinsman's son or one of his, like a younger retainer in as a son mm -hmm. because those kinship ties were so important. Let's see. Right, yeah, one of one of the ways to strengthen or even to create like bonds of alliance and just general friendship would be to in some way establish a familial link. Mm -hmm. That's why we have stuff like the idea of the peace weaver, like a woman being yes. married off to an opposing lord in order to like end a war or bring right. those two formerly hostile groups together is well now now they're family so theoretically they should all be on the same side exactly exactly ties very important which incidentally this is one of my favorite little facts to look at is when you look at beowulf hrothgar takes on beowulf as his adoptive heir and i'm gonna get her name wrong with fellow wait Wealthyow. Wealthyow, uh, which is hrothgar's queen his wife fights against this because She's saying, you done screwed up because you have a son. Now your son can't be an heir because you've given that honor to a different kingdom. What mm -hmm. am I supposed to do? What's my role now? What's your son's role now? And the reason that this is so shameful to her, uh, and she gets kind of shunted off with this responsibility, but really the responsibility responsibility lies with Hrothgar and his own entourage because somebody in his cohort should have stood up and fought Grendel. But nobody yeah. did, so Beowulf had to. So is it Beowulf's fault? If it is it the Queen's fault? It's not not really either one. It's Hrothgar's fault for being a bad king, essentially. 
And uh, Whale the Owl does get her way. The yes. adoption of Beowulf is more or less rescinded after she makes her, her speech. Mm-hmm. And she sort of she's sort of treated badly for that, or at least in a lot of articles that I read about it. <laughs> I'm like, come on, you guys. Yeah. Yeah. So again, that sort of kinship tie is very, very important. So it, that's what we're seeing when our wanderer here is saying he's looking for someone who would know his people in a mead hall or would console him, entertain him with joys. And now he's saying his only companion is sorrow. Yes. And then again, some more wonderful kennings here. The path of exile claims him, not at all twisted gold, a frozen life enclosure, not at all glory of the earth. Glory of the earth being a sort of burial or to be buried with the twisted gold, the the ringlets and torques bracelets. He's not getting a burial. He didn't get to die in battle. He didn't get to die with his kinsmen. He's not buried. But instead, he's on this frozen path of exile where it's freezing, it's winter, his heart is all iced over, he doesn't have anyone here. So we get this weird, or I guess not so weird, but understandable, soul-wrenching balance between oh, why couldn't I have died and be buried in the warm earth versus now I'm alive and freezing and empty hearted. Yes. One of my other notes that I think is interesting is often those who are eager for glory find in their breasts something sad. This word sad, which I've translated here as sad, has other connotations with something bloody or violent. So it is, it represents the heartbreaking atrocities of war, violence, all of that is caught up in this word that it's very difficult for us to understand in modern English because we just we just don't have it. That's a note that I always like. All right. And then I say, oh, night shadows. That's one of my favorite kennings. Mm -hmm. I just like that one. I want to see a creature that's a night shadow. It's a strange phrase since shadows are lessened at night. Yeah, that's true. I always pictured it. I don't know. I tend to interpret these poems or enhance these poems with my own sort of magical fairy-esque imagery. So I like the idea of like little spirit or demon creatures that are the <laughs> night shadows that are just creeping around. Of course. Because we course. do get the re- we do get the reference to giants here. You know, we get yes, the ruins of giants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we've already got those. I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna interpret night shadows that way. Okay, let's go through that list again. Where were we? So the Beasts of Battle. Do you want to talk about the Beasts of Battle? I know sure. you you like them a whole lot. They're fun. All the troop falls, proud by the wall. Some war took away, carried into death. Some a bird bore over the deep sea. Some the gray wolf in death shared. Some a sad-faced warrior hid in an earthen cave, which is to say, to bury. Yeah, and so the Beasts of Battle are the creatures that classically are described as coming to eat the carrion left behind after battle. And there's three, the raven, the wolf, and the sea eagle. In this case, the raven and the sea eagle are being kind of collapsed into just bird. Mm-hmm. But we've got the some uh, a bird bore away, some the wolf. Yadalda, which uh, Zoe has translated as shared, can also be translated as separated. So either one works. Mm-hmm. So, so some some the wolf... Either tore wolves, apart, yeah. Either <laughs> or they tore shared apart or shared with each other, mm-hmm. or both, really. Yeah, which which is why that one word can mean both things because it's like separating things out, parceling them off to people. So you'll see this motif 
quite a bit. It's also in Viking literature. And I want to point out here that it's not quite the same, but the Morgan in the Toyn Bakuling transformed into a wolf, an eagle, and a heifer. Mm-hmm. So she is also, and she is also a goddess of war, a goddess of death. So, and she's also tied into ideas of uh, fertility, oddly enough, or the land. So I think the heifer can be represented there, but then you also have this sort of beast of battle motif. I think they're connected. The heifer isn't the cow of battle? I mean, in the poem, they do like charge on the field and f*** up. So maybe so. I don't think we can rule that out. <laughs> but I, I wanted I wanted to bring her in because she's she's my favorite Irish goddess, and I do think that there is a, a cross cultural connection there as well. So yes, we do have that motif, which is very very fun. And then let's jump down a couple lines into the Ubisunt motif, which Indeed. again, if you've read Tolkien, this will be very very similar to Aomer's lament. Yeah, what a crazy random happenstance. Aw, gee. It's not like he maybe translated, you know, something and realized that he could just shove it wholesale into his novel. Yeah, pretty much everything in Rohan is just him playing with uh, his Old English translating. Fun fact, the first draft of that chapter, is like all the talking among the people of Rohan and Aragorn, all of it's in Old English. All of it. He just wrote it in Old English? He just wrote it in Old English, and then he was like, maybe that's a little too much, and rolled it back. <laughs> so now only a little bit is in Old English. Oh, well, including all of the proper nouns, by the way. Yes. <laughs> like, what is what is Aomer and Aowen? It's like... Those I don't remember offhand, but I bet I, I think could... It's just like horse people or something. Like horse warrior. Yeah, the one that stuck out to me, I was uh, watching the movie recently and they referred to like oh this is a uh, meadow cell the hall of theoden i'm like <laughs> you just said mead hall the hall of king king yeah it's yeah <laughs> i mean he did call it mount doom what do you want and then in one of the extended editions there's that bit where like aragorn walks into the into the stables and he does this little horse girl magic thing where he like calms the wild horse or whatever and the horse's name is brego which just means lord or leader eowyn means horse joy yes by the way i just had had a bit of time on the bosworth toller and so eomer is what horse dude see well mer it might mean horse horse because mer is also mare oh you're right i think it is hang on One who is famous in terms of horses. Oh, okay. Yeah. Eoch, warhorse, and mare, which is... Come on, come on. Show me. Mare is famous. Yeah. There we go. There we go. Famous horse guy. I'm disappointed that it's not horse horse. (laughs) Well, it does have mare, so I don't know. Uh, Regardless, yeah, Tolkien just basically wholesale took all of this. Like, all of the dwarf names... In The Hobbit, he just took from a list in one of the Eddas. Yeah, it lists a bunch of dwarf names, and and Tolkien just straight up took some. He just took them. Like, Gandalf is technically one of them. There's also a King Gandalf in, um, at the beginning of the Heimskringla, which is all oh. of the sagas of the kings. The, like, first saga that's, like, the history since the gods has a King Gandalf. 
Amazing. But while Mac is looking that up, I wanted to read the Lament for the Rohirrim, which is where Tolkien is getting, or sorry, that's what is in the Lord of the Rings. And then I'm going to read the part from The Wanderer where he got it. So this is Tolkien's, I guess, version. Where now the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? Where is the helm and the hauberk and the bright hair flowing? Where is the hand on the harp string, the red fire glowing? Where is the spring and the harvest and the tall corn growing? They have passed like rain on the mountain, like wind in the meadow. The days have gone in the west behind the hills into shadow. Who shall gather the smoke of the dead wood burning, or behold the flowing years from the sea returning? Now, the Old English in The Wanderer reads... Uh, and this is the wise man often remembering after a multitude of slaughters, thinking back on this. Where came the horse? Where came the rider? Where came the treasure giver? Where came the banquet seats? Where are the hall revelries? O bright cup, O warriors and mail, O king's splendor, how that time departed, grew dark under the cover of night as if it never was, stands now in the track of the beloved host, a wall wondrously high, adorned with the likeness of serpents. A host of spears turn away noblemen, weapons greedy for slaughter, and the famous fate. And storms beat the strong cliffs, falling frost binds the earth, tumult of winter when darkness comes, night shadows grow dark, and from the north it seems, fierce hailstorms on men in anger. And then down into all this earthly kingdom is full of hardship. So very, very similar themes here. Both are elegies, both are laments. So if you're wondering, this theme of Ubisunt, or where are they, comes from this this passage the reason i couldn't remember the the word is because i thought it started with a v and it doesn't it starts with a y it's the ah ingling saga Ooh. And king gandalf also makes an appearance in the saga of halfdan the black which is the first king saga after the ingling saga which is the saga that bridges the space between the mythology and the history mm, very cool those are so fun there's such liminal spaces mm-hmm. all right Our next theme is Exile, Ruin, and Journey, which, again, we are going to see in The Seafarer as well. So that's a great note as we go through. Just to compare the two in your head, just look at them. Those three ideas, Exile, Journey, and Lament, are very, very closely tied together in Old English Elegy. I would also say there is some connection to the Imrav and the Ektra that we talked about in Brendan's journey, the Peregrinatio, if you will. But instead of it being sort of a holy journey that one goes on to learn about, you know, the Lord and oneself and find this amazing holy place or the other world, it's much, much more of a pointless sort of affair. You're going into exile because there's nothing else for you to do. There's nothing else in this world. For those of you who've read Ecclesiastes, it's all hevel. It is smoke. It is nothingness. It's all meaningless. It's sort of the theme of this. Hevel? Hevel, yes, is the Hebrew. Oh. Yes. I think Pulling it's- Pulling out it's, some Hebrew at me. You know, I'm doing, you know, it's one of those words that I really like. It's, um, I really, really like words that don't have good English translations that just carry so much weight, which is why I really love Kenning's. But hevel, I think, literally means smoke, but it's mm-hmm. something that passes like smoke. You can't grab it. It's intangible. It doesn't mean anything. Right. So it's one of those that I really like, but I think we see that heavily throughout this poem. Ah. What? Hevel, heavily. Oh, hey. <laughs> Didn't even catch myself. <laughs> nice. 
Oh, another theme is the gnomic sayings that we have throughout this passage. Do you want to elucidate our listeners on that point? Sure. So a gnomic saying is kind of like a proverb. It's just like anything that you could preface with, the wise man says that blah, 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 or possibly Confucius says that blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Or Buddha Uh, or, you know. Yeah. Those Those are gnomic sayings and they can, they're often kind of, vague or obscure or just very broad because they are supposed to be applicable to many situations but they're also supposed to be very old so it's completely in character if they for example use antiquated metaphors or the like Mm -hmm. so we have two of those in the wanderer the first one again is sort of this ubisund motif where the old man is sort of lamenting on ages past and he's saying like all of this has faded away uh, and like oh yes a man is unable to become wise before he passes into the winters of the world kingdom before he dies and then we get this little section that characterizes what a wise man should be according to this elegy or according if you want to be a little bit broader about it according to the old English culture of the time, which is the wise man must be patient. He ought not seem too angry, nor too haughty, nor too angry. These are two words I didn't have other ways to translate. Nor too hasty, nor too cowardly of a warrior, nor too reckless, nor too timid, nor too glad, nor too greedy for wealth, nor too eager of boasting before he may readily know what the challenge is, is my addition there. The warrior must wait when he speaks an oath until a stout-hearted one, that is to say, until he knows where the heart's intention will turn. So in this section, we're sort of understanding what the characteristics are for a warrior to succeed. And it's kind of a stoicism. Very much. Very much so. You can't be too cowardly or timid, but you also can't be too boisterous or glad about stuff. You ought to be measured in where you are and what you're doing. And... I really love how they talk about, oh, you shouldn't be too eager to boast before you know what you're talking about. Because we see this again in Beowulf, where um, Unferth steps forward and he's like, ha ha, Beowulf, you did this thing badly, blah, blah, blah. You can't defeat uh, Grendel. I'm better than you. And Beowulf is like, yeah, you've drunk too much. Like, chill out. Let me tell you about my exploits. And the idea of the Beot or the boast or the fleeting is... um, Oh, gosh, we see it in Beowulf, we see it in the Battle of Malden as well, which also has the Beast of Battle motif, where the opposing sides... Oh, we see it in the ter- Tournament of Tottenham as well, actually. Yes, where we do. We, <laughs> we have someone standing forward and making a claim about what they're going to do. So this poem, as an elegy, is warning you, hey, don't open your mouth just yet. Think about where your heart is turning, where it's going, and what the challenge is before you before you make that boast. Because you might get yourself killed. You might get your entire society killed. Watch out. This is what a wise man must do. Yeah, and this is connected in some way to there was a old English tradition of making vows over the mead cup. Mm, where mm-hmm. yeah. Where classically you'd like be handed the mead cup and you'd make a vow and you take a drink to seal the vow. Mm-hmm. But we all, but we often see that uh, kind of going wrong when someone is perhaps already had some mead. <laughs> and so that's, that's where we get the idea of people boasting over the mead cups and making rash vows. Yes. Uh, another interesting phrase here is how spiritual will it be? And this, this word is gasliche, 
which can be translated as spiritual or terrible. Now, I, my professor and I like quibbled over this a little bit because Gaslicha is, from what I found, only ever glossed and translated as terrible in this poem. In every other instance, it's, it's translated as, spirit, as spiritual. Right. So I'm inclined to go with spiritual, how spiritual it will be when this world's wealth stands ruined. Like, oh, it's literally the second coming. We're all ghosts now. Again, it does have that connotation of terror because this is where we get our word ghastly from. Gaslicha becomes ghastly. So there is this sort of um, spiritual horror that is also there. So this is also where we get the Pokemon ghastly from. Yes. (laughs) Man, we started with Old English and now we're Pokemon, man. This is why medievalism matters. (laughs) You can only truly understand the Pokemon, if you've read The Wanderer, and I'm just so glad that we were able to deliver that all to you. Now go forth and catch your ghastly Pokemon, knowing what you do now about Old English Elegy, and hold it and bind it fast in your heart locker. (laughs) (laughs) A Pokemon game with, like, an Old English Elegiac feel would be the wild that would be horrifying i know (laughs) can you imagine like it would be scarring (laughs) you get on your pokemon and it's like your pokemon churns the ice cold sea whither will you go and it's like okay i want to go that direction and you just meet this old man and he's like you must not be too haughty nor too angry nor too hasty nor too cowardly or you will fall in battle to the other Pokemon trainers. What do you do with that? (laughs) I don't know, but I want it to exist (laughs) now, and I know it never will. (laughs) I can pitch it. I will will take it to the directors. (laughs) (laughs) I think the main problem they would have is that I don't think you can just make a Pokemon game. True. I'll pull some strings. I'll see if I can get in contact (laughs) with the people at Pokemon. We'll do an Old English translation. It's like the pirate speak on Facebook. Yes. You can get a mod that's just Old English elegiac verse. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> yes, anyway. <laughs> um, After that weird tangent. <laughs> yes, anyway. How spiritual or how terrible will it be when all this world's wealth stands ruined and, you know, decay the wine halls, rulers lie, joy deprived, all the troop falls. So... Here, at least, the second coming or sort of the end of the world is not a very glorious affair. It's more like everything's falling apart. And Mm -hmm. this, again, is a theme that Tolkien uses uh, when he's writing The Lord of the Rings. And it actually has become quite a staple in fantasy. You don't really see any up and coming societies in fantasy culture. Everything is about the falling away in the old traditions, like even Game of Thrones, you know, it's like, oh, well, we once had this great kingdom and now we've got the seven kingdoms and blah, 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 blah. And it's the end of the world and the White Walkers are coming. And then in Tolkien, it's like, oh, you know, we once had this grand age and now there's a new age and we're coming into the fourth age, blah, 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 blah. So I'm trying to think of other fantasy series that don't really lean on that as heavily but it is it is quite a staple in fantasy literature and that comes from tolkien which comes from once more this old english tradition yeah that the world's in decline that once it was great and now it's passing we're slowly yeah the great age is past and we're slowly approaching the end yes 
like that idea you see it in yeah pretty much all high fantasy Mm -hmm. somewhere Mm -hmm. and i would say a lot of sci-fi as well because they're sort of two sides of the same coin yes Uh, and again you can see this later on in the poem towards the end which again there's a theme in elegy specifically of you start with the individual and you end up with the society in the middle and then you get into this broad gnomic tradition of kind of giving advice and looking at the whole society. And so you see this here with destiny of fate, changes a world under heaven, wealth is transitory, friends are transitory, individuals are transitory, families transitory. All the earth's foundation will become empty. Thus spoke the wise man who sat himself apart at council. So again, the wise individual is he who stands alone. Mm-hmm. and all of the things that you have in this world will fade away, which, again, is a theme of Ecclesiastes. It's a theme of Old English elegy. Oh, gosh. It's sort of a theme of the Iliad-ish. Maybe not. Maybe I'm reaching there. I'll keep it in anyway. Eh, I don't know. It It's not as poignant in the Iliad, but it does strike me because Achilles is like, well, live fast, die young. Peace. And that's sort of his whole thing. Like, everything is transitory. He's just going to die. He knows he's going to die. He accepts that he's going to die. And again, you see that here. But anyway, (laughs) I'll leave that to our listeners to decide whether that's an apt analogy. And then finally, at the very end, we do have this theme of Christianity that you do see kind of peek through, which is, well is he, or, or he is at rest, he will do well for himself, who seeks mercy and consolation from the Father in heaven, where all security resides for us. And so at the very, very end of this poem, you get the idea of like, oh, the world's a dim, horrible, dark place. We're all going to die. But you know what? At least we're going to heaven. Yeah, And there's I would say there's some question as to whether that was in the uh, pre Exeter book versions. Yes, because it does seem very tacked on. At the yes, end. it does. Very, very much so. I will say and we do have earlier in the poem, the creator so devastated this world of men. Until lacking the noise of the population, the old works of the giants stood empty. So we do have the creator here referencing God. But is that Woden? Is that God, the father of Christianity? Yeah, I mean, even not making even if we don't want to make the argument that it's originally pagan, I would say that it's not it doesn't seem that it was originally a religious poem, or at least I would say it's debatable that that religious theme was there before. Yeah, oh, definitely. I think it at minimum is a meditative poem, but it's not Mm -hmm. necessarily a religious poem, which we'll see more of in The Seafarer, which I think we can move on to now, unless you have any other themes. I have no other themes. All right. Let me go into the seafarer. And we can interrupt as we go for this one. And this one is not my translation. I've only done part of this one. This is from the Old English Poetry Project by Dr. Aaron K. Hostetter, who has done most of what is written in the Exeter book, which is quite impressive. Uh, And of course, I will link all of these on our blog so you can read them for yourself and follow along. So here we go. Let's jump in. Oh, I guess one more one more thing about the Wanderer, which will carry over into the Seafarer, is when we get these lines of I think or I say or thus the old man says, it's difficult to understand whether the speaking bit is before or after that line. When is the actual speaking bit? When is the wise man speaking as opposed to the narrator? 
it's harder to know because we don't have quotation marks. So that becomes up to the reader and up to the translator to parse and to understand. So any and all breaks in these poems, any and all, I guess, editorializing, editorializing that you see is 99% of the time down to the editor and the translator. Mm-hmm. All right. So here's the seafarer. I can relate the reality, a song about myself, go on about the going, how I in toilsome times often endured desperate days. Bitter breast cares have I abided, explored in a boat many sorrowful places, the terrible tossing of waves, where the narrow night watch often seized me at the stem of the ship when it crashes upon the cliffs. So again, right off the bat, we have this, let me tell you about all the hardships in life. Yes, specifically the hardships I personally have gone through. Yes, precisely. And now he's going to go into all of the hardships that he has endured. Oppressed by chills were my feet, bound up by frost with cold chains, where these sorrows sighed hot about the heart, hunger tearing within the sea-wearied mind. He does not know this fact who dwells most merrily on dry land, how I, wretchedly sorrowful, lived a winter on the ice-cold sea, upon the tracks of exile, deprived of friendly kinsmen, hung with rimy icicles, hail flies in showers." Here we have once more the tracks of exile or the path of exile, deprived of kinsmen, cold, freezing, alone. These themes are poignant in The Wanderer. They're even more poignant here in The Seafarer. And they describe someone who is basically far beyond any kind of worldly help. It's worth noting that it's always cold and freezing. It's always, it's the winter Mm -hmm. in both of these because that's the time when ideally you should be shut up in a hall with, you know, your friends and a roaring fire. Yes. In the meat hall. Like you shouldn't have to be out there. Yes. Alone. Moving on. There I heard nothing except the thrumming sea, the ice-cold waves. Sometimes the swan song I kept to myself as a diversion. The cry of the gannet and the curlew's voice for the laughter of men. The seagulls singing for the drinking of mead. Storms beat the stony cliffs there, where the tern calls him with icy feathers. Very often the eagle screeches with wet feathers. No sheltering kinsfolk could comfort this impoverished spirit. I love this bit with the birds. Yes. And I would absolutely love to see if we could understand more about the ecosystem of the time based on this poem and maybe where he was. I'm sure someone has tried to do that. I hope so. Uh, But a little bit more into the text itself. He's saying, I heard all these birds. Sometimes I mistook them for the drinking of me, the laughter of my friends, but I'm still here and nobody could really comfort me anyway. Like, it doesn't matter if I were on shore. What's that going to do? Nothing. I might as well sit in my boat and freeze. That's so emo. (laughs) These are really emo poems. Yeah. Clamadaws would like them. (laughs) Clamadaws. He would. Can you you imagine? Very often the eagle screeches with wet feathers. No sheltering kinsfolk could comfort this impoverished spirit. I really feel like I met people like that in high school. Oh, yeah. Poetry slams. Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) They don't understand. Even if I was in the mead hall, it wouldn't matter. I belong here. 
with the cold fetters around my heart in this endless icy sea. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that's some quality emo poetry there. <laughs> it's just old English elegiac poetry. That's all you need. Yeah. All right. Jumping more into the emo. Therefore, he doesn't really believe it. He who owns the joys of life and very little of the perilous paths living in the cities, proud and wine-flushed, how I must often endure the briny ways wearied. Dusky shadows darken. It snowed from the north, binding the earth in ice. Hail fell to the ground, coldest of grains. Therefore they come crashing now, the thoughts of my heart whether I should test out the profound streams, the tossing of salty waves. My mind's desire reminds me at every moment, my spirit to oventure, that I should seek the homes of strange peoples far from here. I do like hail, the coldest of grains. Definitely. That's a great visual. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me how he's, how our narrator here, how our wanderer, our seafarer is sort of bitching about how the people in the cities don't get it, but also his heart is telling him to go. Yeah. And that calling of something is, I would say, imperative to Old English poetry. There's something very, very much like you must follow your spirit. And that spirit that you have inside of you is often deeply intertwined with your kinship group. Yes. All right. So it's odd that he's sort of in exile, going into the homes of strange peoples. Therefore, there is no man so proud-minded over this earth, nor so assured in his graces, nor so brave in his youth, nor so bold in his deeds, nor his lord so gracious to him, that he will never have some anxiety about his sea voyaging, about whatever the lord wants to do with him. Neither is his thought with the harp, nor to ring-taking, nor to the joys in women, nor the hopeful expectation in the world, nor about anything else but the welling of waves. He ever holds a longing who strives out upon the streams. The groves take on blossoms, beautifying the cities. Gardens grow more fair. The world hastens. All of these things make the hurrying heart mindful. The soul to its travels, to him who so imagines on the floodways to travel far away. Likewise, the cuckoo admonishes him with a sorrowful song. Summer's warden sings, pronouncing pain, bitter in the breast hoard. Men do not know this thing. Pleasure wealthy people, what some experience, who venture widest on the ways of exiles. So this section, our seafarer is saying essentially that once you've been out on the ocean, your heart comes back to it. Like mm -hmm. You can never really expect what the Lord is going to do with you on the ocean, which I think anybody who's ever been out on the sea can understand. The sea is a dangerous beast. Yeah. And we're also getting some more seasonal imagery. We've got the summer's warden, the cuckoo. Mm -hmm. And pronouncing pain. Yes. What's more emo than that? <laughs> the cuckoo sings and the cuckoo sings pain. <laughs> Son. But I do like the continuing seasonal comparison of mm -hmm. like, the cities are full of blossoming gardens, but wherever he is, it's still frozen. It's frozen. It's nasty. There's hail. And like it. Once you've been out on the ocean or once you've been called out onto the ocean, you're not going to enjoy music nor to ring taking, which is like being in an entourage with a lord. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not going to have any joys in 
women or sex, any of that. Nope. Nor the hopeful expectation of the world. Nope. You're just thinking about the ocean and how it sucks. <laughs> or I guess to put it slightly more seriously, you're if, once you're on the path of exile, no, nothing in the world is going to satisfy you because there's nothing there that can satisfy you. Uh, all right. Onward. Therefore, my mind departs outside its thought locks, my heart's insides, with the ocean's tide, across the whale's domain, departing broadly, the corners of the earth. It comes again to me gluttonous and greedy, the lone wing keens, wetting the heart without warning onto the deadly way across the surface of the waters. Therefore, they are hotter to me, the joys of the Lord, than this dead life loaned on land. How could I ever believe that the earthly whale will stand? on its own eternally. Always one of three things in every case will occur to the obscure matters before his time is through. Disease or old age or else the blade's hatred will usurp the life from the faded, hurrying from here. So again, we get to this culmination of none of the earth's things will satisfy because my heart burns for the joys of the Lord and this dead life means nothing to me. And then he gets religion for the second half of the poem. Yes, this is where we get all the religion. Therefore, for every man, praise from the afterspeakers, and the living shall be the best of eulogies, that he labors after before, he must go his way, performing it on earth against malice of enemies, with brave deeds opposed to the devil, so that the children of men might acclaim him afterwards, and his praise shall live ever among the angels, forever and ever to the fruits of eternal existence, joys among the majesties. The days have departed, all presumption of earthly rule, there are no longer kings or kaisers or gold givers such as there were when they performed the greatest glories among them and dwelt in the most sovereign reputation. Crumbled are all these glories. Their joys have departed. The weaker abide and keep hold of the world, rooking it in their busyness. The fruits are brought low, the glory of the earth, elders and withers, as do now all men throughout Middle Earth. Old age overtakes him, blanching his face, the gray-haired grieve. He knows his olden friend, the noble child, was given up to the ground. Nor can the flesh home, when the life is lost, swallow down sweetness, nor suffer sorrow, nor stir its hands, nor think with its mind. Although one's brother may wish to strew the grave with gold for his sibling, to bury beside the dead many treasures he would wish him to have, that gold cannot comfort him, the soul filled with sins, which he hid before now while he was still alive, from the terror of God. That's a lot. There's a lot yes, there. That is a lot. I... I do like it. Oh, I love it. I love that imagery. I feel it reminds me of, and of course, everything in Old English reminds you eventually of Beowulf, because Beowulf is Beowulf. <laughs> it's sort but, of the cornerstone of Old English literature. Yeah, but it is similar to that uh, bit at the end of Beowulf, where they describe the treasure being buried with him as as useless to men as it ever was. Yes, I love that one. And cursed. Yes. I think we forget that it's cursed. Well, that's why it's so useless. And yes. also that it's just gold. It's just gold. And then... And it's underground, so no one's using it anyway. <laughs> yeah. I really like this idea that the living shall be the best of eulogies. Yes. That's just a great line. Again, we have this idea of the passing of things, that the earth was mm -hmm. once great and now it's passing away. The great kings, the great gold givers have disappeared. Now we've got these weaker kings who hold on to the world and it doesn't help anybody. 
the glory of the earth elders and withers i think is one of the that that's the line that really i think sums up the old english elegiac mood is absolutely it, it withers the glory of the earth withers yeah it's, it's not just the people that are gone it's not just you and your soul that are gone it's not just your friends it's the earth itself is crumbling and withering away into nothingness mm-hmm. and that is such a like yeah we make light of a whole lot of stuff on this podcast but i don't know whenever i read these poems it grabs me with this sense of utter desolation and grief that i don't think you find very often in modern literature as much no again i really like the literal feeling of the flesh home your body cannot swallow sweetness suffer sorrow stir hands or think with its mind and even if your brother wants to give the body you know gold and jewels that's not going to do anything yeah there's nothing there it's the what's the little it's another eulogy but it's a more modern do not sit at my grave and weep, for I am not there. I do not sleep. This sounds really familiar. Let me Google it. Yeah. Aha. Do not stand at my grave and weep by Mary Elizabeth Fry. Yeah, I was never going to come up with that. Mm-hmm. 1934. So considerably more modern. Yes, very much. And then there's also do not go gentle into that good dark or that oh, good well, night. Yeah. Rage, rage yeah. against the dying of the light. Yeah, yeah. That that one everyone knows. Everyone That's knows that one. Dylan Thomas, right? Yes, Dylan Thomas. Here we go. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in morning's hush, I am the swift uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. That's good. Yeah, pretty good one. But anyway... Again, that's a that's a more uplifting version of, of an elegy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas this one's like, the birds are crying and it's not your friends and family. It's just the birds. It's all going away. Yes. And, and the, the dead body is just a body. That's it. There's nothing there. <laughs> uh, and then we get this very interesting, aggressive, scary transition about gold being hidden away in a grave from the terror of god yeah and i i really wish that we got more about that because it feels like there's a story there but instead we just get even more religion and we never really come back to any of the stuff that we've touched on previous stanzas (laughs) unfortunately i'll 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 say my piece once we get to okay all right we're close to the end let's go Mighty is the fear of the measurer, therefore the earth shall be changed. He established the unrelenting ground, the corners of the earth and over heaven. Foolish is he who dreads not the Lord, his death comes unexpected. Blessed is he who lives humbly, his reward comes in heaven. The measurer endows the heart in him because he believes in its power. Man must steer a strong mind and hold it firmly, assured among humanity, clean in his ways. Every man must keep himself with moderation. To those beloved and those he deadly hates, even though he may wish them to be filled with flames or burned up upon a pyre, his own confirmed friend, outcomes are stronger, the measurer mightier still than the thoughts of any man. Let us consider where we should possess our home, and then think about how we may come there again, and then we should strive also, so that we may be allowed to do so, into those eternal beatitudes. There life pertains to the love of the Lord, the hope in heaven. 
Thanks be to the Holy One, so that he may honor us, the Lord of glory, eternal master for all time. Amen. All right, so <laughs> I know it ends with amen, but this really feels like an incomplete poem to me. Yes, or at least two, it almost feels like two halves of a poem. Yeah. It's like two separate like, ideas. I think it would work better if we got like the bit about the seafarer himself and then the... I'm making these gestures even though no one can see. And then the <laughs> religious bit. And then we came back to the seafarer. Oh, 100%. But I feel like just like seafarer and then religion. It's just this it swift cuts off. turn. And completely cuts off what we were doing before. Mm -hmm. And this is why I read The Wanderer first. Because at the very end of The Wanderer, you get this whole little like, Ah, oh, yes, and... Well is he who dwells in the Lord. Amen. Yay. But then you get to this poem and you're like, wow, this kind of comes out of nowhere. We were talking about how dreadful all the ice is. And, you know, let me tell you about the horrors that I have witnessed and that I am enduring on this boat. And then next thing you know, you've got like, here's how a man should live in terms of like Christian way of living. Right. And you're yeah, like, it almost wow. makes you wonder if like someone accidentally it on. <laughs> copied part of another poem onto this one yeah yeah so there's there's a lot of articles on that we are not going to go into them there i think generally it has been agreed upon that this is all one poem but when we're talking about things generally being agreed upon in old english elegy there's always plenty of gray area to to wiggle around in because it's so old and we don't have context and we only have so much old English literature to work off of. Right. But even if they did do it on purpose and this was how it was originally written, bad ending. Those are our workshop <laughs> notes. Fix it. <laughs> yes. Go back and do better. I, I will agree with that one. Uh, yeah, you, you go from this weird... Like, again, you start with the individual, you get into the society stuff, and then all of a sudden we're talking about how to live well, except this one doesn't really wrap it up like the Wanderer does. It's just mm -hmm. like, oh, here's some extra religion for you. Have fun. Right. Yeah, exactly. So let's see. What other notes did I have for this one? Again, the journey, the wisdom, the passing of the world, the sort of falling away of mankind. And then, yes, the Christian themes. So in this one, we have, I would argue, sort of less pagan or older tradition and more like, sure, we'll start with the elegy and the loss of the Lord and the loss of society. But then we're going to focus on what it means to act as a good Christian. Like, we're, like we don't really get back to... Like, ah, oh, yes, you city folk really just don't get it. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of like, when does that transition really hit for you in this poem? I feel like there are there are two points where it where I seem to notice like a sudden transition to, into more religious. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one is, uh, therefore, they are hotter for me, the joys of the Lord, which is about halfway through. Mm -hmm. And then... The shift that mighty is the is the fear of the measurer is I think the one that really stands out. Absolutely, dramatically different. Yeah, I think you could get away with the first one because it's sort of like, oh yeah, I burn more brightly for the Lord because I understand the things of this world don't matter, mm -hmm. things still suck. But then you get into, you know, sure I can bury my brother in the earth and the gold means nothing. Every man must keep himself with moderation to those beloved and those he hates. It's like, um, okay. Where'd that come from? What, what was that about? Well, one, where did it come from? And two, how does that line up with living a better life in the context of being and living in this path of exile? Does it keep you from the path of exile? Is just is this just part of the path of exile? 
There's no context for that here. None. None. I did find a very fascinating article about like the symbology of the birds in this poem. So I'll, I'll link that one, but it gets into, uh, it gets pretty technical. So I'm not going to go over that in our episode itself, but I will link it. Okay. But it's, yeah, this one's a weird one. This sort of rides the line of elegy and religious poem, which suits the Exeter book entirely, I think. Mm-hmm. It's right at home in the Exeter book, but as a work in of itself, it's a bit odd. There's also a very nice translation of this poem by Ezra Pound on the Poetry Foundation. So if you're interested in reading that one, it is there. Didn't know Ezra Pound did one. Although I'm not sure I ever really trust it when poets translate these. I feel like they're, they have different sensibilities and different goals than people who are just translating it straight across for the joy of translating. That's true. Okay, so what do you think of Seamus Heaney's Beowulf translation? I mean, I think it's fine. <laughs> I prefer, I mean... It's much more comprehensible than Tolkien's translation. Yes, but I like the more literal translation. That's fair. I I do enjoy the literal translation, but I will say, if you're looking for a casual introduction to Beowulf, Seamus Heaney's version is the way to go. I would argue against that. I would say if you're looking for a casual introduction to Beowulf, Maria Headley's version is the way to go. Ooh, okay. All right. That's the more recent one that starts with bro. (laughs) Listen up, my homie. Let me tell you about this shield chafing guy. So like if you want the story and don't want to worry too much about like the literal translations, then I would say read Maria Headley. I'll second that. If you want the like literal translations, if you want to understand what exactly it was intending to say, uh, Tolkien might be a better bet. Yes, very true. Here's an interesting note. Ezra Pound's version stops before the mighty is the fear of the, me- the measure. So I'm saying you can't trust those poet translations. Mm. Well, see, to be fair, to be fair, there is some debate about where to split this poem. Yeah. So. All right. And we did say that that was where we would cut it. Yes, that's true. See, this is the problem when you don't have punctuation. Yeah. <laughs> or titles. Mm-hmm. Or titles. Anything like that. I will say Ezra's version is a bit more um, purple. Let's see. That's surprising, given what I know of Ezra Pound. Lord of the living boasteth some last word, that he will work ere he pass onward. Frame of the fair earth, gainst foes his malice, daring ado. Oh, I see. It's got that, like, archaic. Yeah. Like... <laughs> it's, like, archaic, but it's not archaic sort of vibe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because he, he says, um, there come now no kings nor Caesars. I mean, honestly, that might be a better translation than the kings or Kaisers. True. I mean, it is it is fundamentally the same word. Yeah. So, one's the Germanic tradition, one's the Roman tradition. Yeah, I, I suspect that the reason why the version you read has Kaisers instead is so it alliterates. I would agree, definitely. Because, yeah, like you say, they're fundamentally the same word. Right. Alrighty, into the wife's lament. Yes. This one is shorter. Which is good because we're already an hour and a half in. (laughs) Yes, we are. Alright, so, the wife's lament, she laments. Oh, I can relate a tale right here. Make myself a map of miseries and trek right across. That is the coolest intro line. It is, it's good. That's dope. Make a map and trek across. A map of miseries. You high schoolers wish. With your slam poetry. 
I'm sorry. Was that too bitter? I remember writing this kind of poetry. <laughs> I was I was, was not good. as edgy as I thought. Did you do slam poetry as a youngster? I didn't do slam poetry. I did write poetry to like cope with shit. But my, as I have said, I'm very bad at poetry. None of my poetry rhymes. None of it has any meter. It's just sort of free verse poetry. So it depends. I mean, on... I think that's what you're supposed to do these days. It it is the trend these days. I just. I would. I think I would rather die than write a sonnet. I could try. It would be a very bad sonnet. <laughs> I'm not good with poetry. Like, I'm sorry, Dr. McDowell. I have tried. It did not work. But anyway. Regardless of that newfangled free verse trend. <laughs> oh my gosh. Have you read any of Rupee Cower? I have not read her personally, but I've heard a lot of people trashing her. Mm. Yeah, it's not great. She's done really well for herself. I do not think it counts as poetry, but she's done very well for herself. All right. But anyway, there's there's some really interesting poetry out there these days. Probably always. You could always say that. What? I just Googled her and uh, the Wikipedia page describes her as she rose to prominence on Instagram, eventually becoming one of the most popular Insta poets. Mm -hmm. And I'm like... I'm out. Read read any one of her poems. You don't have to. I probably shouldn't All right. dig at her Good, because on the podcast. But I I appreciate what she's done for herself. It is not my style of poetry. But then again, I'm old fashioned. I, I like old English elegy, so I can't say much. Yeah. And I'm I'm a Philistine. I, I like poetry that rhymes. <laughs> I appreciate that. As someone who's worked very hard to enjoy that kind of poetry and has struggled. I do enjoy D John Donne. I just I just can't read into it as well as academics would like. Anyway, all of this aside, oh, I can relate a tale right here, make myself a map of miseries and trek right across. I can say as much as you like. How many gut-wrenched nights ground over me once I was a full-grown woman from early days to later nights? Never any more than right now. When is it never a struggle, a torment, this arc of misfortune, mine alone? It started when my man up and left, who knows where, from his tribe across the sleeplessness of waves. I conceived a care at the dawning of dawn. That's literally how he translates it. Where did that man of a man go? Then I ferried myself forth, trying to dole my part of the deal, a wretch drained of friends, out of trembling need inside me. So it begins. His family starts scheming, mulling up mountains of secret malice to delve into our division, to make us survive along the widest wound of us. Could they be any more loathsome? And I became a longing inside. My love is said to shack up in shadowy groves. I was light in loved ones anyways in these lands, in the loyalties of allegiance. Therefore my brain brims with bitterness when I had located my likeness in him, blessed with hard luck, heart hollow, painting over his intentions, plotting the greatest of heists. Masked content so many times, we swore that nothing but finality itself could shave us in two. Not them, not nothing. The pivot was not long in coming. It's like, what did I hear a poet say once? As if it never was. That was our partnership. Must I flag on flogging through feud far and near of my many beloved? He was the one who said I should go live in the woods or something. 
Sit under an oak tree in a gravel pit? Let's make it an earthen hall, musty and old, where I'm for eaten with longing. Dales deep, darkly, hills hedge me round. Fortresses of sharpness, bramble biting. Can a home be devoid of joy? For too many watches the wrathful from ways of my lord grabbed hold of me in this place. Who could I count on? buried. Loved in their lives, all they care about now are their beds. Then I, when dawn still rumbles, I wander the ways all alone, under the oaks around these graven walls. There I can sit an endless summer day, where I can rain me down for my racking steps, my collection of woes. So it goes. Never can I, in no wise, catch a break from my cracking cares, nor this unfolding tear that grasps me in this my entire life. The young should always keep their heart in check, their inner kindlings cool. Likewise, they must keep their faces frosty, also the bubbling in their breast, though crowded with swarming sorrows. May all of his joys come at his own hand. May his name be the name of infamy, a snarl in faraway mouths, so that my good friend will be sitting under a stony rainbreak, crusted by the gusty storms, a man crushed at heart, flowing in his own water, in his tearful timbering. That one, yeah, that man of mine, will drag his days under a mighty mind-caring. He'll remember every single morning how full of pleasure was our home. What but woes are theirs who must weather their worrying for love. That's a very, very good poem and a very good, uh, somewhat modernized translation. I yeah. That was very cleverly done. Yes, absolutely. I love this one. I love just the sheer anger that comes yes. through this poem. It's like, damn, this woman's mad. She's angry. A theory that I've heard going around that I've always kind of given credence to is that the wife is living in an earthen hall because she's dead. Yes, that is one interpretation. And then that gives me this other like vibe in a, a couple verses later when she says, I, when dawn still rumbles, I wander the ways all alone <gasps> under the oaks around these graven walls. There I can sit an endless summer day. It sounds like she's haunting the cemetery. I think so. I love that interpretation. Ooh, that is creepy. That's always been my favorite interpretation. I don't know if it's the majority, but I like it. There's a lot of different interpretations around this poem, whether she's been with multiple men, whether she loves her man and he scorned her, whether she was with her man and the family split them apart and she still loves him. I think she's definitely dead. I think that he probably scorned her. Yeah. Or killed her. I mean, something like that. Yeah. And... <laughs> Possibly her uh, allies, because she also says right in between those two verses, uh, those two stanzas I just quoted, she says, who could I count on buried, loved in their lives? All they care about now are their beds. Yeah, that like also a grave bed. Like, yeah. Whew. The, the story I see happening on this is that there was some kind of schism or conflict in whatever community she was a part of, and... She and the people that she could count on were killed. Mm -hmm. And then she curses him and his family. Yeah, she's cursing the people responsible for it. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Interestingly enough, this is a type of Frauenlief, or a women's song. There are other examples of this more in Germanic tradition, uh, but this is one of the few that we have in Old English tradition. And 
It is a bit different than the elegies, but it still bears a lot of comparison. So I say we go through and sort of look at the differences and the similarities. Here, I think one of the main ones is that instead of um, the man being split from his kindred and wanting that connection back, she's Mm -hmm. eschewing all connection to the living, to these people, and she's cursing them. Yes. There is not so much like wisdom poetry here as like a fuck you, fuck your family. We're done. Hashtag relatable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, very much. Which is why I hope in my reading it came across as an angry poem because- I think it did. Okay, cool. Because I genuinely think that she is pissed off throughout this entire thing. Like it's a lamenting poem, but also she's mad. Yes. All right. So let's go through in a little bit more depth here. So she's saying, essentially, like, all my misery started, like, I was full grown from early days to late nights. I'm still more angry right now. And then we go straight into it. First off, her first grievance is that her man up and left. Yes. So he leaves, he goes on a sea voyage, whether that's for a journey, a war, whether he's leaving her, it doesn't really specify. I would guess that it's more of the inane sort of up and going, either trading or, or Viking or whatever. Yeah, mundane. Yeah. Yeah. And then she says, like, she's trying to do her part of this deal, of this marriage. But she doesn't have any friends in this society, which makes me think that she is one of those peace-weaving women, or she at least is estranged from her kin. Right. If she, It sounds like she has allies, but that she was definitely, like, clearly things didn't work out for her. So that would imply that maybe her allies were few. Mm-hmm. Like may- maybe just a few people who came over with her if she was a peace weaver. Right, exactly. And then his family starts scheming. How do you read, del- like delve into our division, make us survive along the widest wound of us? It sounds like the family of the man is kind of tr- is forcing them apart in some way. Yeah, like possibly by us. Uh, I can't come up with a good with a good way to phrase it because my the the only thing I can get is they're 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 worm tonguing like they're speaking poison into oh, their ears. Oh yes, yes. Oh, that's that's where I was going to go with. I think they're emotionally estranging the couple, not literally. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Like, that's better. There's a lot of emotional ma- manipulation going on because eventually it's my love said to shack up in shadowy groves. Yeah. Yeah, and is that him like kicking her out or saying you need to go hide mm-hmm. until this blows over? Mm-hmm. Let's see. I was a light to loved ones anyways in these lands, in the loyalties of allegiance. So again, I get I get peace weaver motifs out of this. Right. Yeah, like, she doesn't have loved ones in these lands because she's from somewhere else. And she's the only light that connects them to yeah. these people. And then I love I love this masked content so many times we swore that nothing but finality itself could shave us in two not them meeting his family not nothing and then the pivot was not so long in coming it's like what did i hear a poet say once as if it never was that was our partnership like geez that's just soul wrenching it is because they tried and then next thing you know it's like there was no love ever there Mm -hmm. he was the one who said i should go and live in the woods or something so did did he suggest her death? Yeah, or kill her. Or kill her himself. Because then immediately we have sit under an oak tree in a gravel pit, an earthen hall, musty and old. And again, this is all language that we see surrounding death and burial. Like, where's the... Um... Oh, while you're looking that up, I just yes. dug this up real quick. 
the gravel pit isn't uh, necessarily a gravel pit. That's a that's the a modern translation. What it is is, and I'm going to pull up Bosworth Toller because the word is Eorthsgrafa. Ooh. Which I believe just means like an earth scrape, basically, a hole in the ground. A grave, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Path of Exile claims him not at all twisted gold, a frozen life enclosure, not at all glory of the earth. So again, like the glory of the earth being a grave. So we, or I hid in the earth's darkness, buried. So again, there's there's a lot of imagery here surrounding her being dead. Yeah. Yeah, the, okay, so the gravel pit, or Eorthsgrafa, it just li- literally means an earth hollow place, or an earth cave. Yep, yeah, and we see that language again, um, to be buried in an earth cave, to be kept in an earth home. Yes, and the, the earthen hall is entirely literal, but it's one. It's also one word, it's Eorthsela, yeah. which is earth hall, yep. which is also a grave. Yeah, she's totally dead, man. <laughs> And then she then she goes on to say, like, I can't even catch a break because I'm still here, you know, haunting everyone. Yeah. Uh, and then again, we have this brief moment at the end where she she starts by talking about herself and her own miseries. She then talks about her society. And then down she goes into general um, advice, gnomic wisdom. The young should always keep their heart in check. Their inner kindling's cool. They must keep their faces frosty, the bubbling in their breast and all of that. Um, and immediately after that, something that is very, very different than our other two elegies. What we would, what we would expect in our other two elegies is sort of a prayer or something proclaiming the Lord or this is how to live a better life. And instead, we get a curse. Yes. May his name be the name of infamy, a snarl in faraway mouths. And I think that's invoking her, her family. Oh, yeah, of course it is. Because her kin is far, and she's saying her friend will be sitting under a stony rain break. Yeah, so the translator is taking some liberties here, but the original is Si fa fiores foclandus, which is, yes, he, sh- he shall be, or sh- or it might be more of an imperative, like a... May he. Yeah, thank you. May he be wide, uh, known as... May he be widely hostile and far in the lands of far people, or may may he be widely thought of with hostility in the far, in lands of far people, in, or in uh, yeah, far peoples and lands. Yeah, curse him. Yes, <laughs> I did have an interesting note from an article that I read. This is. Women's Songs, Women Language, Wolf and Adoeser and The Wife's Lament. So that's another poem that we're not going through, but I'll, I'll touch on The Wife's Lament here. And this is by Patricia A. Belanoff. Both of the Old English Frau, Frauenlieder adhere to some part of the symbolic underpinning of the period's poetry. The rhythmic template upon which both depend is the four-stress alliterative line. Both poems will draw upon the connotative force of formulas and formulaic expressions, which is what we've seen already with those phrasings, with starting with the individual and going forward um, to sort of that gnomic wisdom. Furthermore, both the structure and sequencing of ideas in these two Frauenlieder 
suggest a lack of interest on the part of their narrators in traditional forms, logic, and chronology, thus pointing to the meanings which lie outside customary or symbolic language. Whittier notes that the smaller number of the dependent clauses in the wife's lament in comparison to the wanderer and the seafarer, which results in a syntactically looser structure. Such syntactical looseness may correlate with or contribute to the disjointed effect of the poem and our impression that it is more than the three other elegies, that is, the wanderer, the seafarer, and the husband's message, an emotional rather than an intellectual or philosophical statement. The rhythm imparted to the poem by the higher number of independent clauses mirrors the pulsations of the semiotic. So what what she's arguing here is that, yes, this poem mirrors the elegies of the wanderer and the seafarer. However, whereas the wanderer and the seafarer are both more meditative, the wife's lament very deliberately takes the elegiac structure and then says, no, I'm going to make this emotional. Mm -hmm. So it's I guess, subverting this style of poetry in a way that we don't really see elsewhere, which I think she overall argues that this is a more feminine or female way of writing, or at least in this case, it represents the female, which I don't know about that individually, but in in archetypal senses, generally speaking, that does line up with archetypal myth. Yeah, yeah. Like you 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 can argue that there's some problematic elements of that interpretation. Yeah. But that is how the archetypes are generally seen, yes. Yes, yes. So I wouldn't necessarily attribute it to female Old English literature because we really don't have a good example of, you know, female Old English literature. But I would say that the Weisselman very deliberately subverts the elegiac forms that we have seen in The Wanderer and the Seafarer. Yeah, I mean... We really don't have any idea because all of the authors except Kunewolf are anonymous. Mm-hmm. Like, who knows which, if any, of these poems are written by women? Mm-hmm. We don't know. They could all be. Yeah. None of them could be. We don't know. So, like, we can't talk about female Old English literature, just Old English literature in which there are female main characters. Yes, precisely. Which may or may not be written by women. Who knows? We don't know. But we do see it subverting some of these tropes. So, yeah, we can't really... I wouldn't want to talk about the gender identity of the poem, but rather, like, how this type of poem as sort of a curse is different from the elegies, but still fits the elegiac format. Yes. And that's pretty much what I had on these poems. Oh, okay. So I did have like a little section of like other considerations. So first off for the wanderer, one big consideration that people debate a lot is how many people are speaking? Because there's a couple places where the wise man says, and Mm -hmm. it could be that the narrator is saying the whole thing all the way through. It could be that there's two different wise men. It could be the same wise man. It could be the wise man at the very, very end is saying the entire poem up to that point. Uh, so again, with no punctuation, it is up to us to interpret that as we will, which generally, I think it's funny when academics try and pick apart where these breaks are, because for me, it's a lot more fun to imagine it myself. And I think a good poet will deliberately blur those lines. So Mm -hmm. for me, I just enjoy wondering about that and finding different ways to interpret it based on whether we decide whether there's one speaker or two or, you know, however many. Uh, but that's that's one thing to consider. 
Another consideration that often pops up in the literature for the seafarer is who is this spoken by? Is this spoken by a religious hermit who's going on a pilgrimage? Is this spoken by someone who's lost his kin and is just sick of the whole world? Is this spoken by like a common fisherman? Because he seems to know his seabirds pretty well. Who is the type of person who would know their seabirds in order to pen this sort of poem, for instance? So that's one of the considerations for the seafarer. And then the the final consideration for the wife's lament is, does she really curse her husband in those last lines? Yeah, so like, does she, is this like an actual curse? Is the entire thing a curse? Is it not a curse? I I mean, I would sort of vouch that the whole thing is a curse, but maybe I'm just a bitter woman. (laughs) (laughs) I'll let you decide that one. Maybe I just like curses. Could be that. There's also, there was one article that was like, yeah, back in the day, someone suggested that this was actually not a wife's lament, but it was another dude. And it was like, all the pronouns are feminine, my guy. Yeah. That doesn't really work. So it's it's widely, um, that one's been widely debunked. But there have been some pretty interesting, like, ideas brought forth. Sort of like the idea that Shakespeare was a woman, that kind of idea. Yeah. But there are some final parting questions for you to think about. And we would love to hear your feedback, whether whether that is on the Facebook or on the Discord. How do you think these poems should be interpreted? How how would you read them? Is there something that we're missing uh, that you think would add to the reading of these poems? This is why I was so nervous to cover these elegies, is that there's so much literature on them, and there are so many ways you can interpret them. And two, there are so many ways to interpret them. It's like, Ah, no matter what you say, there's some academic who's not going to be happy with you. <laughs> I'm excited to hear any dissenting opinions from our listeners. Oh, absolutely. I think that would be amazing to get like a dialogue going. Yes. Please come on to our Discord. We love having conversations <laughs> with you guys. Indeed. We really, really do. Anyway, segments. Oh. What say you? Best yes. dialogue, I guess? <laughs> I mean, the whole thing is really a dialogue, so just pick your favorite line. Yeah. Hmm. See, I'm hesitant about picking anything from The Wife's Lament, because I I know that the it, it's much more in the Headley style of translation, where it's been very modernized, mm. but it's very good. It is very good. I think it still counts. Because, again, we're, we're reading all of these in translation, so... In that case, I would say that... Honestly, I think the starting with the, the map of miseries... Mm, mm-hmm. Which I'm not sure is originally there is the problem. Like I'm looking at the see, original the text. English. Yeah. If you are looking for these in the Old English, The Wife's Lament is on Old English Aerobics. You can find a lot of great stuff on Old English Aerobics. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. Oh, very. That's where I am right now. Very, very much. So that's a great resource. If you are interested in learning Old English and practicing your Old English, please check out oldenglisharobics.net. They're one of the great resources for Old English. I know that I use them in my my classes, so very much give it a whirl. Yeah, the map thing isn't there originally. She, it's, uh, Ich that sech an my hot ich untha jabad, sitten ich ukweoks. I will, I may tell that what miseries I have endured mm-hmm. uh, since since I have grown up. Yes. So, okay, so we don't get map of miseries, but it's still pretty good. Yeah. I'm going yeah. to I'm gonna have to go with the my favorite line from 
the Wanderer, which is fate is holy inexorable, or fate is full resolute. Yeah, you know what? I agree with you because that one, that one I know is is a pretty close to literal translation. Oh yeah, it's a. I just like that one. Using any of these in a D and D game. First off, if you don't use the wife's lament and make her like a ghost that you can have a quest for to like get back at the husband, you are doing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> in, in our interpretation, at least, there is a whole quest there. Oh, for sure. You've got a, a ghost haunting a graveyard who has been possibly killed by your own husband mm-hmm. and betrayed by her in-laws mm-hmm. and who has kin in faraway lands who are... Ri- just raring to Avenger. Oh yeah. And you've gotta you've gotta what? Put her spirit. Gotta somehow yeah. navigate this situation. Put her spirit to rest. Yes. Or was she killed for a good reason? Like that could be the other side of it. We don't know. Yeah. What is her deal? Yeah, there you go. Alright. What about the seafare? We'll just go backwards. First off, I want a salty old sailor NPC who's just like, oh, you city folk don't get it. You you do yes. not know about the miseries that I have endured. My cold feet, my locked up rib cage. I have arthritis now. <laughs> Come on, guys. I think it could also be used to add uh, flavor to any sea journey to talk about like the frozen feet mm, and the, mm-hmm. the hailstones, the cold grains. Yes. I think using a lot of the imagery in this, I think, would be a great addition to any game and especially anyone writing. For me, a lot of my inspiration in terms of language and writing comes from the old English poems. It comes from the Viking sagas. Uh, Seamus Heaney was very much influenced by Old English and Irish culture and language. Tolkien obviously was inspired by this directly, almost literally. Uh, so there's there's just such a wonderful history and depth in this language that I feel has fallen out of favor. People think it's archaic, but for me, it just, it absolutely grabs my heart and my spirit. And that's where I derive a lot of my inspiration in terms of my own writing. So I would say, please include this sort of language in your own work because i mean what's cooler than somebody describing their ribcage as a heart locker like come on yeah that's so cool or word hoard for your mouth the whale road is the ocean it's just cool <laughs> i just like it but anyway any part of this language i would i yes. would go for especially if you have like some romance bit where you can include you know the whole, as the poets say, is that it's as if it never was, or anyone I could count on buried. Like, those are just great lines, and you don't expect that in Old English poetry, but here it is. Uh, all right, anything from the Wanderer that we want to include? I want to use the Ruins of the Giants. Ah, uh, yes. Or the, um, the wall that is decorated with serpents. Also very That good. one comes out of nowhere and it's never explained. And I'm, I just, I have no idea what it means. I assume he's just describing the hall where his, his lord used to dwell. That's fair. I just like that imagery. I think it's fun. But also, again, I think you can include 
quests of exile. You can have your party encounter somebody who's in exile if you're looking for a background for your character. It could be somebody who's on the paths of exile. Any of that Mm -hmm. would be very, very interesting. And again, the theme of the world passing away, an old age that was once full of glory that is now fading, I think is a fantastic sort of grounding pillar for a campaign. Yes. I was going to suggest that and I was like, well... Do you ever not have that? Because that's such a part of, like we talked about, that's such a part of like the high fantasy trope is like the the lost age of times past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's basically in every sci-fi and fantasy, even Star Wars. Like A New Hope starts off with like, hey, we had a Republic, we had the Jedi, and yeah. now they're not here anymore. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's really hard to avoid having that in... Yeah, any kind of science fiction or fantasy setting. It's because it all comes back to Tolkien. The bastard. Yeah. Even in settings where it's like not distant future space opera sci-fi, but like near future Mm sci-fi, you'll often find suggestions of like some other like alien species who attained great heights and fell and now we're just finding their their relics. Mm -hmm. You know, like in Babylon 5. Yeah. Watch Babylon 5. (laughs) You could even consider... um, cyberpunk as well the cd project red game because even then it refers to the old times before you know night city became a thing it's like yeah we live in night city now and it's a capitalist dystopic nightmare and then they refer to like the old earth as in like the times we're living now as such like such Mm -hmm. a better place and you're like oh okay sure (laughs) but compared to what night city represents and what it is yeah for sure Yeah, and like on Firefly, there's Earth that was. Mm, Yes. But we're getting too off track being distracted by listing examples of science fiction that have this trope. Yes, yes, true, true. I think that covers pretty much everything. Yeah. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over? Echoes in in modern culture? I mean, again, this trope is one of them. Yeah. Yeah, this trope is everywhere, and it is largely inspired by these poems directly. Yep. The Tolkien Tally. Tolkien Tally, I think I've covered that. You know, we've got the... Oh, we missed one, though. (gasps) Did we? Yes, we didn't mention that the walls built by giants are described as Entaweork. Oh, yes, that's right. Which is, yes, where Tolkien got the word Ent. ent. Mm -hmm. He got the Ents from that. There was another one. Um, The Seafarer, of course... Tolkien used the idea and the imagery of the seafarer as like Arendelle and the Silmarillion and blah, 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 blah. And I've talked about his poem, The Seafarer. I've talked about his poem, Tree before on the podcast. I won't go into it again. But this was a direct inspiration. I mean, basically, we've got the wanderer he pulls straight from the Ubi scent motif we've we've got in there. This idea of exile going into the West. We've also got we've got the idea of the seafarer and errantry and all of that. I talked about. That's about it. Yeah. Ents also ents. <laughs> also ents. All right. The dungeon master's dictionary. Any and all of the cannings. We already talked about the language. Yeah. Yeah. The language. Absolutely. To. Read it, read read the poems, read multiple translations of the poems mm-hmm. if you can. If possible, take a look at them in the original, borrow some of the kinnings in the language. All of them are good. It's just so rich. It's so rich. 
smarts. I mean, you could take any of the gnomic wisdom, theoretically. I think that's generally yeah. a good idea. Like, the, the stoicism throughout these poems is pretty impressive. You know, don't be too hasty. Don't put a boast out there before you actually know what's going on. Yeah, we get a lot of good good gnomic wisdom that we can just slot right in there. Yeah. Don't kill your wife, because she'll, she'll curse you. Yep, yep, that's how you end up cursed. All right. Best moment. I'm going to go with the curse. I just like, I like curses. I agree, <laughs> I agree. The curse at the end of the wife's lament is the best moment. Best moment. Because, like, the other ones are so emo, and then emo, but with a religious twist, and then the, the, the wife's lament is just like, screw you, I might be dead, but I will haunt you from the grave. Mm-hmm. It's very it's good. It's very good. Final rating. Each individually or all together? I think we ought to do them all together. All right. In that case, all together, I'll give them a nine. I'm knocking one off because the seafarer is clearly unfinished. Yes, I agree. And I think the reason, especially for such a high rating for this, is that anybody can go out and find these poems in multiple translations. You can find the original mm -hmm. Old English online. You can understand it. It's pretty easy to get the basics of translation down. They're easy to understand. They're easily accessible. They're all around badass. And then the seafarer is just kind of weird in the middle there. And there's a reason that they're everywhere. That It's so easy to find multiple translations it's because they're just so powerfully written mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely they really are cornerstones of the english language and i'm i wish we had more of this kind of literature but i'm so grateful for what we do have indeed indeed and anyone who's practicing old english i would highly recommend going out and translating these poems i learned a lot more about the wanderer going through and translating it myself you you do not get more intimate with a work than translating it, I think. I would agree. Yeah. Already. Welcome to the Leech's Corner. I did find the original Latin for this, actually. But the mm -hmm. Latin version for this is the edition that I found it is in German. Oh. So I had to parse through the German to get to the right Latin <laughs> that I was looking for. So, fair warning, it's out there, but it's in German if you're looking for it. Water. I won't do all of them because she lists quite a few rivers, but we'll get through some of them. Water right. is from a living source. Water springing forth from their source wash away all filth. If there is blood and water in a person's eye, either from old age or an infirmity, one should go to a river or pour fresh water into a vessel. Leaning over, he should take the moisture of this water into his eyes. That moisture will stir up the water drying up in his eyes and render them clear. That seems extraordinarily straightforward. Yes, but also dangerous. Don't put fresh water in your eyes. Yeah. That's how you get amoebas. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, let's see. He should also take a linen cloth and dip it in pure cold water. He should tie it around his temples and eyes, being careful it not touch the eyes, lest they be aggravated by the water. The cold water on the soft linen cloth will dampen the eyes until the water of the eyes is restored to sight by this water. Because the eyes are fiery, their membrane thickens. When that membrane is touched by the water, as mentioned, the coldness and dampness of the water will thin it. So it's like a cold compress. Yeah, that sounds nice. Yeah. 
One who wishes to have hard, healthy teeth should take pure cold water into his mouth in the morning when he gets out of bed. He should hold it for a little while in his mouth so that the mucus around his teeth becomes soft and so the water might wash his teeth. If he does this often, the mucus around his teeth will not increase and his teeth will remain healthy. Since the mucus adheres to the teeth during sleep, when the person rises up from sleep, he should clean them with cold water, which cleans teeth better than warm water. Warm water makes them more fragile. This is mouthwash. She's invented mouthwash. Yes, precisely. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense, though. You know, like, you wake up and you've got, like, morning mouth or whatever, and it mm -hmm. just doesn't feel good. She's like, do the easy thing. Cold water. Yeah, just rinse it out. Rinse, rinse it out with cold water. Mouthwash. That's awesome. All right. A woman who suffers inordinately great menses for an excessive amount of time should dip a linen cloth in water and place it frequently around her thighs so that she grows cold internally, since the unreasonable flux of blood is restrained by the coldness of the linen cloth and the frigid water. She should then massage the veins in her legs, belly, chest, and arms by gently squeezing them with her hands. This keeps them within bounds so that the wrong route is not created for the blood. She should also be careful not to work too much and not to be worn out by too much traveling, lest that blood be agitated. She should also be careful not to eat hard and bitter foods, lest they give her indigestion. During this time, she should eat soft and sweet rations insofar as they heal her internally. She should drink wine and beer, since she is strengthened by them and is thus able to retain her blood. All right. There you go. I I note that she that Hildegard has now passed your test of remembering to include menstruation in her work. Yes! <laughs> That's fascinating to me. I wonder if she's talking about, like, she's not talking directly about a miscarriage. She's just talking about, like, a really heavy period. Yeah. Or a period that doesn't stop. Right, which doesn't necessarily have to be, like, a euphemism or something. Mm -mm, no. You can just have a really heavy period. It could be for endometriosis or PCOS. I will nod and agree because <laughs> I don't know anything about either of those other than that they're, like... They're very rough Related on periods for women. Like having either one of those can give you really weird periods, either no periods or periods that go way too long or, you know, any of that. So that's cool that she creates a space for that. Alrighty. Oh, is that all that's not rivers? That is all that is not rivers. Well, there's the sea. I can do the sea and then we can do rivers next time if you want. Let's do that. Okay. So the sea sends forth rivers, which is the opposite of how it actually works. Yes, But facts. okay, We're, we'll roll with it, Hildegard. The sea sends forth rivers by which the earth is irrigated, just as the body of a human is inundated by the blood of its veins. Some rivers go out from the sea with a rapid motion, some with a gentle motion, and others by storms. Oh, that's cool. Because that happens a lot in Alaska. You get, you get rivers that flood during high seasons of storms or when the glaciers melt, but otherwise are very, very shallow. Yeah. So she makes, that's cool. They have a space for that. The earth along the course of each river has some sort of grassy vegetation, unless it is too rich or too dry or too rough, so that from it, vegetation is unable to grow. But from the land which is moderate in these things, vegetation grows. And that is what she has to say about the sea. Mostly river-based. Mostly river-based. I assume that Hildegard did not spend a lot of time on the coast. Given that she was a German, I would doubt it. <laughs> Stuck I mean, Germany much. has a coast. It does, but she was stuck right, like, in the middle of it. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, clearly she hasn't seen where the rivers meet the sea, or she'd be aware that they flowed the, the other The other way. direction. <laughs> Aw. Poor Hildegard. She should maybe stick to her medical knowledge. Mm-hmm. Alrighty. Well, there you go. There's Hildegard. Yes. And that's what she has to say about 
One of the major themes of our readings today. The sea. Water and the sea. (laughs) Funnily enough, I think our elegies were more factual about the ocean and water than Hildegard was in her encyclopedic book of facts. Yeah, I mean, at at least they didn't say anything that's outright wrong. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know what to make of that. That's just an observation. Well, I guess if you're trying to, like, write down a... Uh, an encyclopedia entry, you're going to have to make more claims than if you're just kind of describing an experience. That's true. That's true. So it's more likely that you'll get something wrong. Yeah, that's fair. Especially if you're trying to talk about like the entire sea as opposed to this is my experience in the deepening misery of my woes upon the ocean. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Like you can say like, uh, my feet froze and no one's going to say like, feet don't freeze. Or like, it happened to me. (laughs) Personal experiences. Alrighty. But there you go. I hope that, you know, we started out with a very miserable sort of theme and, and hopefully it has lightened up your experience of the day for whatsoever day you are having. Yeah, just remember, no matter what's going on, at least your feet aren't freezing to the deck of an ancient ship. And, you know, what more can you ask for? I mean, a lot, but that's still a good baseline. It, you know, it's something. It's something. And we'll take it. <laughs> Alrighty. I guess we'll stop the recording. Yeah, this seems like a good place for that. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, you can check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, for more medieval and geeky related discussions. And feel free to reach out. We are always excited to listen to you guys and hear what you have to say. We're on Twitter at Maniculum, and we're on Instagram at Maniculum Podcast. Special thanks to Sandra Boyle for creating our music. You can check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. His family starts skeeving. Uh, Wow, that was not a word. His family starts scheming. To be fair, skeeving is a word. It is a word. It's not too far <laughs> That's off. That's fair. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's in the OED yet, but I'm sure it will it be. It should be. <laughs>